Don't you just feel, don't you just feel like you're present in that place? It just pulls you right in, the majesty of God's creation. We're going through the book of Genesis, just which speaks from the very beginnings of, of God's creation and his incredible love and the way he initiates with us. So we're continuing that series in Genesis, and it's my privilege. I'm Nick, one of the teaching pastors here on, at, on staff, looking forward to continuing that series. If you've been with us these last several weeks, you realize that as we walk through the book of Genesis, uh, it speaks into areas of our heart that can stir us and move us deeply. And hold on, because today is no different. Uh, we're going to step into a passage uh, where we're going to be faced with incredible evil, and at the end of our time this morning, I hope we land and have some, some thoughts around this question. And the question is, how do we react when evil is deeply painful and it hurts those closest to us? So that's, that's where we're going to head. Welcome to Highlands. <laughs> so if you're, if you're new, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are stepping into this series in Genesis um, and in a couple of weeks after Genesis, we'll be in the book of Mark leading up to Easter. And so we go book by book and just walk through those scripture passages because no matter the ups or the downs, God can speak through each passage and we believe that as we walk through things. But just like in, uh, in our own stories, at times we can get focused on one spot and forget the big picture. Just like when you meet somebody for the first time, you're not gonna just share some random fact. When you meet somebody for the first time, when you go on a first date, what do you often do? You just kind of share the broad strokes of your history and you get to know somebody in, in general terms and you kind of get to know them. And over time, as you get to know somebody better and trust builds, you begin to then maybe unwrap certain chapters of your history that maybe are more deeply personal, that have shaped who you are today, but in isolation might not have made sense. But somebody sees the bigger picture and they care for you and they love you. And so in the, in the same sense, as we come to scripture, at times what can happen is people can pull out a single verse, a single chapter, and they go, ha ha, how evil, why, why could this, how could this be? Look, look what God says here, look at this piece. And yet, in isolation, we get confused in spots, and so it's incredibly important to step into context. What's before, what's after, as we see what God's doing through the story in a broad stroke. And so before we dive into our specific chapter today, I'd like us to step back and look at some of the context that lands us in our chapter. Because maybe you're a bit like me and you have a hard time remembering what you did yesterday, much less what we taught about the last several weekends. So, so here's, some, here's some context that brings us into our, into our chapter today. So what, what happens is in the beginning of Genesis, God initiates, God creates, and you see through the pages of scripture, he's a God who loves and initiates relationship. And yet on our part, not just today, but historically, we continue to see us push away and think we have the better idea of how to live as humanity, but no, God creator has our best mind on his mind. So very early on, we see God choose Abraham. So he calls from among the people Abraham and calls Abraham and says, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to multiply your descendants. And your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And through you, the world is going to be blessed. It's not just going to be your nation alone and harbor all the good stuff for you. But through you, the nations are going to be blessed. And so Abraham and Sarah are eager. They, they step in response to God and they begin this journey. And yet... They didn't have a child. They wrestled with infertility and they have these challenges and Abraham takes things into his own hands and thinks, well, through Hamar, maybe it'll happen. He has, sleeps with another woman and his wife was for it, then she's against it. And you get all these twisted things going on in this story. And, but, but God is faithful and he continues his promise through Abraham and Sarah to their son, Isaac. And you continue to see, even despite challenges and in individual stories, God is faithful from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac 
and his wife have a son, Jacob, who was a twin as well. And there's story dynamic that goes into some of the challenges of their family relationships. And if you go back in Genesis and you read, we're not looking at perfect people with perfect family scenarios. And so don't get that confusion in your head. But from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob later, his name is changed to Israel. Through the nation of Israel, they face the ups and downs of the Old Testament. But eventually that original promise that the whole world would be blessed through a family, Abraham, is realized in the person of Jesus Christ, who then we, because of Jesus, when we place our faith and trust in him, are grafted into the family of God. And praise God for that grand story that we see trace through history and we study that and praise God for it and yet just like maybe your story and my story when we isolate into chapters we see painful scenarios how does God work in even those so we're going to step into chapter 34 of Genesis so open up your Bible to that spot and we'll be reading through this chapter and let's not forget the overarching what's happening here but we're going to be looking specifically at Genesis 34 I'll read the first four verses, kind of set the context of a scenario here, and then we'll pause and discuss that here. Genesis 34, starting in verse 1, says this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's our connection here. So Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, The prince of the land saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. That's that's horrendous. That is not okay. What we see and read described in these first verses is an arrogant prince who is entitled and treats a woman as property, seizes her and takes her for whatever his pleasure is to do. That's not okay. The, the word here um, is humiliated her. That's the same term that would have been used earlier in Genesis when it talks about a, a man and a woman would leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and what would take place is you consummate a marriage. What's twisted here is he takes and does that first and then thinks that that results in a love and I want to marry her. No, 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 no. What we see here is wrong. And as I read this over and over, the thing that I just was lost, at loss for words for is how do I share that here? What do you say to somebody that's experienced what Dinah's experienced? I don't have great words that are going to speak into that. And simply, I want to say, I'm, I'm sorry. And maybe you need to hear the words that hopefully you'll hear throughout the message of how God identifies with the oppressed. And God sees and God loves and God knows in ways nobody else does as a wonderful, loving, heavenly father. Despite what has taken place, would you, would you reach out for help? Maybe you've never done that. Let, let Highlands be a place that we can help connect you with that help that needs to be put in place for you. Let us help you be on a track towards hope and healing that maybe you've not experienced before. But what happened to Dinah was wrong. And what we're going to see in Shechem is we're going to see somebody who thinks in arrogance he can get away with it. And we're going to see that continually pop up. And if there's in a room this size somebody that's a, a Shechem, 
If there's a Shechem in this room, we need to make sure. <laughs> We're going to just keep reading through scripture. That's good because <sighs> ah, we can breathe, right? <laughs> so thank you. If there's, a, if there's a Shechem in the room that has experienced in the past and thinks they're getting away with it, repent. It's wrong. The application is afterwards. Step out, find a staff member. Let's contact the authorities and find the appropriate consequence that takes place. We're not going to be somebody that harbors or that allows that kind of behavior in our midst. That's not okay. Now, is there grace? Is there repentance? Does God work in beautiful stories to bring salvation through people's lives? Yes, absolutely. And, and there's consequence. Those things do coexist. But before we're too quick with a Shechem to say, well, at least I'm not him, I would never do that. Let's recognize that, that Jesus didn't let us off the hook in this area. He raises the bar in a way that would cause all of us to look in the mirror and reflect. And so, so I, want, I want to read some of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to a crowd gathered. And as he shares in that environment, he's speaking about all different areas where people would say, well, basically, do I cross the line or not cross the line? Is this sin? Is this not sin? And he's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Beyond just an action, let's step back and reveal what's the intent of the heart. And so listen, listen to these words of Matthew 5. It says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It goes on to say, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. So what is, it, what is he saying? He's saying, what extreme measures are you going to to rid yourself of any hint of sexual immorality? What extreme measures are you going to? It may seem extreme to gouge an eye out or cut off a hand, and it's probably using hyperbole to get to that point, but what type of things in our current culture where privacy is raised up so high, what things do we do to actually eliminate some of that unhealthy privacy in our own lives to allow others into our lives? Practically, who has access to all of your passwords? Who's not just a friend on social media, but can access your social media accounts? Who are the people that you're in regular conversation with so that there are, are lines drawn in your life so that when you cross a line, it's not called the police, it's not here's Shechem, but it's suddenly you've got a friend there to go, oh, come on, let's, let's get back on track. This isn't, this isn't who you wanna be, we've talked about this. And there's such tight lines that it's not restrictive and I have no fun, kill joy, but it's a, wow, I want to be a part of a community like that because imagine being a part of a community where we're all in this together. Imagine the differences that would be like for us in our neighborhoods, our schools, when all the parents and families are treating their own kids and family in that way. Think about just the practical morning routines of what that would look like in your life. I know for me, one of the things that, that I enjoy in the morning is I get up in the morning and, you know, this morning I left before the kids were up, but one of those processes in the morning is I regularly wake up and uh, will give my daughter Cadence a big hug and a kiss and, and she's like, oh, dad, 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 right? No, what are you doing? But then if I don't do it, dad, why didn't you give me a hug, right? So I've had some fun with her of the, you know, I'll, I'll take her hat off and I'll kiss her hat and put it back on her. And every time you put your hat on at school, it's like I just kissed you on the head. Because I want my daughter to grow up in an environment with appropriately father love and affection in her life. My son is on the other side of the scale that he's like huge hug and like slobbery smooch on the cheek. I'm like, all right, Matthias. Right? Okay, that's woo. But I love the question he asked at the end. Are you going to kiss mom? <laughs> yes. 
everybody. So I embrace my wife and give her a kiss like you should only with your wife. But I think there's, a, there's an encouragement here to both what are you pursuing in a healthy way in the outlet that God has allowed for and what are you pruning? What are those things that we need to cut out so that we don't land in a spot like Shechem? And Jesus' words in Matthew raise the bar for us that we would even check the intent of our heart. And I think as we begin this chapter, we need to hear those words clearly. And so let's step back into Genesis 34 and continue reading now as we see the scenario that's taking place. We're now gonna look at two different reactions that go in different directions. We see how Jacob responds. We're gonna see how some of Dinah's brothers respond. So let's, let's pick up in verse five. It says, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now the translation says, Jacob did nothing. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. And I feel like finally there's some emotion on behalf of Dinah. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take your daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Total disregard here on Hamar's part for the behavior of his son, Shechem. He completely ignores his original action and assault towards Dinah. Ignores that and jumps straight to what potentially would be a social benefit and financial advantage for him in his town. So he ignores all of that behavior and jumps straight to that. And what we begin to see here is that Jacob is silent. And begin to track Jacob's response here because we don't see anything. But the response is coming. So this is what sets up. Now let's see how the brothers respond. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully. Because Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only, only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now listen to this. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to become to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. 
Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. We see here that Shechem has incredible sway. I mean, think about that. I mean, just very practically to convince a whole city full of men to be circumcised, he's got some sway. So maybe that's just he's got the sword in the town, right? But he's got sway in this, and, and there's clearly an evidence this, this guy sits in a seat of power. His arrogance continues to demonstrate, even as he communicates with this audience here, that there's no acknowledgement of his original sin of what he has done. It's simply a speak. He's simply speaking towards what could be financially advantageous, what could benefit them what, with complete disregard to the behavior that he's treated. We also begin to see a description of how that city is described. And so later we'll see a, a judgment on this city, and later in Scripture we'll see the ways that Canaanites and others are annihilated and wiped out. But, but before we get too hung up on some of that type of destruction, think about the character of Shechem as he's described here. Earlier in what we just read, it said Shechem was the most honored of his father's house. So in that city, if, was, if this was the behavior of the most honored among them, what does that speak to the behavior of the men of that city? What does that speak to the behavior of the men of that city that would have been disgusting? That normal behavior like this should never become normal. And yet you see them in this spot thinking that they're stepping into a spot where they're simply going to gain some more crops and some more women and some more opportunity and, and no thought to the ramifications of what could take place in their own families. And so, let us continue. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, thank you, Scripture, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered their city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Now in verse 30, Jacob breaks his silence. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? How do you feel after reading that chapter? I've read it over and over and over and over, and every time just left feeling wrecked. I even get to the end of that, and it doesn't even feel like there's a resolve. I mean, you pick into the next chapter, and you're on to the next thing. But it just feels like, what happened? And I'm left thinking this question that we started the morning with as we begin to step back into this passage. How are we to respond when the ugliest or most painful sins hurt those closest to us? 
How are we to respond? Because in this passage here, we see two responses. How do we respond when deep, painful sins hurt those closest to us? We see two responses. We see people go in, Jacob go in one direction and her brothers, Simeon and Levi, go in the other. So let's, let's examine those briefly and see if we might f- glean some things from this. So Jacob, what does Jacob do? First on the scene, Jacob responds and it says he holds his peace. Another translation, he does nothing. And then later, he simply speaks, and it seems like it's out of his own self-preservation is why he speaks. Why? Well, not to excuse him, but let's peel back a little bit earlier in his life to see what's happening here. So for Jacob earlier, he was swindled by Laban, his father-in-law, and ended up marrying Leah. Never loved Leah. Finally married Rebecca. Or Rachel. (laughs) Rachel. But Leah... Leah has six sons and a daughter, Dinah. Jacob never loved Leah and that side of the family, as we find evidence from this chapter in the way he treats Dinah in his response. Now, on the other side, where his wife, who he loved, had Joseph and Benjamin, we read about them later in Scripture, and he mourns nearly to the point of death himself that the thought of his sons dying from this side of the family. So as we narrow in on these chapters, what a... Uh, ugly, up and down. This isn't an excuse. This isn't okay. But we begin to see what's happening in this story. But Jacob finds himself with somebody close to him when he should have come in as father protector and does nothing. How do we respond sometimes when we sit in a memorial and we're not sure how to respond to somebody? When somebody shares something with us that's deeply painful, how often before we're quick to judge Jacob do we end up doing the same thing where we don't know what to say so we don't say anything? It's a very real spot we find ourselves. Because what do we say? And then suddenly maybe something comes out of our mouth, like it'll get better, and then we realize that was even worse. Like we just, those trite sayings that try to be helpful can be more hurtful, and so we end up like a Jacob, and we just hope things will go away, and it'll be fine. Let us avoid that response. But we see that very real in Jacob, and in many times our own lives. Now, on the flip side, what's the second response? Not not only do you have Jacob's response, but we then also end up with Simon and Levi. They pull out swords. They're not going to turn you the other cheek. They're going to punch the guys in the cheek, right? They're the ones that are coming out, and they start murdering people, okay? I mean, there's a righteous anger that initiates, but then turns into an evil anger and just goes crazy on everybody. They plot, and they plan, and they deceive, and they just start murdering In fact, you see this as a part of their own character that that Jacob speaks to later in Genesis 49 where he says, the sword will never depart, Simeon and Levi. They're characterized by violence, and you see that in this chapter. So they go overboard. They flip out. And it's amazing how by the end of the chapter, even though Shechem and that whole town is murdered, at least for me, I didn't feel like that brought me resolve at the end. And yeah, I think there potentially, even if that's not a wise response, as we'll look at, there is a sense of which, I think as you step back in God's divine judgment towards people, that that wasn't an inappropriate response in the way God was judging a town for inappropriate behavior that would have been marked by even the most noble of them, which makes you wonder what other horrendous sins were a part of that city that God just went, enough, you're done. 
But in this instance, this is not a behavior that we're to step into. When faced with evil, how do we react? So when faced with evil, how do we react? I think we begin to see some glimpses here and we see realized in Jesus how we respond. When faced with evil, how do we react? React First, be angry. I think there is a spot when you finish this chapter to have a sense of anger about what happened and you see the brother's response where they're angry. I mean, there's a sense of which when evil surfaces itself and hurts people close to us, when somebody shares something, our first reaction can be tears of, of sorrow that we are we're broken and angry with them for what has taken place. And so be angry. And as Christians, we have an understanding that, that this is not just something small and simple, but the beginning of the gospel understands that there is deep evil that's woven into the fra- fabric and DNA and molecular structures of all of creation that's, that's broken. And so when we see that rear its ugly head and hurt those we love, we're righteously angry. And yet, be cautious, as it says in Ephesians, and some of you are probably thinking in your head, be angry, do not sin. And what's the next part of the verse say? Here's Ephesians Four, I think this is important to catch. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What opportunity? What opportunity? I think what you can see happen is you can have a righteous anger directed at a sin that then the opportunity the devil takes is to let that start to seep into your heart and sink down deeper and deeper and in a spot where you're driving down the road and you're picturing, this is how I'm gonna get back at that person or man, that thing was so evil. You just wait till the next opportunity and you start processing and mulling over and the thing you originally angry at, the sin that you saw has now boomeranged back into your own heart and it starts to impact yourself and it's just waiting for a moment to explode onto others like you see in Simeon and Levi. They see an evil, respond in anger and then internalizing themselves. They even take circumcision and twist it to their own devices to manipulate these guys into a spot that they exact vengeance. And how often when we're angry at something, does it come back inside of us and, and hurt our own soul? And the devil uses that opportunity to continue to hurt others and hurt others and hurt others. And it's worse than it originally even started out to be. I mean, I think about just something simple we often say to our, our kids. Two wrongs don't make a right. And it's a simple statement, and yet sometimes it's so hard for us to hold on to and apply. Have righteous anger. We're not talking about Super Bowl Sunday next week, yelling at the TV because our team's not winning, throwing things at it, right? I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's emotional outbursts and things, but that, that's, that's a whole different. We're, we're talking about anger that's directed at evil here that would stay righteous, but do not sin. We begin to understand the heart of the gospel as we understand the deep impact of sin when we step in righteous anger. And we then move, when faced with evil, not only be angry at it, but to identify with the oppressed. Identify with the oppressed. Where, where's God in this story? I think, and it doesn't say it here, so this is simply conjecture on my part. I think that we see God consistently with Dinah through the chapter. It's not spoken here. But when you do a Google search or pull out your Bible software and search oppressed or thematic oppressed, you're gonna see words pop up oppressed. 
downtrodden, lowly, all of those type of words. And it's going to be fill the Psalms with how God identifies with the oppressed. He sees those that are unseen. The unlovable, he comes close to. Those that are wounded, he takes, brings comfort. So those are the places that Jesus finds himself. And so when we are most Christ-like is when we identify with the oppressed. What does Jesus say in Luke? In the beginning of the, the book, chapter four, Jesus says, I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In Hebrews 13, talking about our response and action, brotherly love is to care for those mistreated. In, he, in Matthew 25, 45, Jesus is speaking. He says, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Turned around, when we identify with the least of these, those that have no voice, that are of no social advantage for us to take the side of, to speak up for, when we find ourselves with them, we are actually near the heart of Jesus. Because you see, as we continue to understand, what does the gospel tell us about this? This, this is what Jesus did when he stepped out of heaven with all the glorious power and authority that he had. Philippians said, he stepped into our world, became like one of us. No social advantage, no reason that he should do that except for his love initiated towards us. And so when we see incredible evil, how do we react? We're angry, we identify with the oppressed. And lastly, we point to Jesus' death as evidence of the severity of sin. It's moments like this when we read a chapter and we just go, oh, where maybe there's greater understanding on our parts of why Jesus had to die. Forgiveness is not simply a, hey, no biggie. You don't do that in a scenario like this. But instead, we see Jesus hanging on the cross, and as he's hanging on the cross for our sins in that spot, not deserving it, he looks and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Even in that moment, those causing him the most horrendous death, he asks for forgiveness for them. But he goes to the cross and he dies and he rises victoriously. And what I love as we point towards Jesus is we see in him a beautiful compassion marked with a holy justice. And he puts those things together. And so, how do we respond? How do, how do we care for? What do we do when we're faced with incredible evil? Well, Jacob never turned to God. You don't see Simeon and Levi pause and, and put their plans for vengeance at the hands of God for input. You don't see that. Let us turn our gaze towards Jesus and move. Jesus, this is evil. How do we respond? Allow ourselves be righteously angered, don't let the devil have opportunity to sin. Identify with those of the oppressed because we are the hands and feet of Jesus and then point to Jesus' death as evidence of the severity of sin because it's in that place that we find hope, that we find healing that is not accessible anywhere else. So the simple invitation is simply if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And there's an invitation in the gospel to say, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. 
And if God's drawn on your heart, please don't let it be a moment, a morning that passes you by, but come find myself, find one of the ushers, find one of the bands, somebody here that brought you, and let them know what's going on in your heart and your life. Let us be a church that walks with you in the highs and the lows. Let us pray together as we come both with a, a humble, gracious sense of gratitude to our Heavenly Father. God, God, be with be with those here wounded today. God, that's all of us in varying ways. God, would you comfort as the God of comfort, bring comfort in ways that words cannot express. God, would you break our hearts for our brothers and sisters impacted by horrific sin. Give us tender hearts to weep and sit with those when it might be easier simply to ignore. And we know that you hear the cries of victims and you have compassion for the weak. Would you bring justice even now? And it's, it's with anticipation that we await your return, knowing you will put things right. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. We pray these things, trusting your power, your love, your justice in all things. It's in the good name of our Heavenly Father that we pray. Amen.